Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew 26. And uh, we want to welcome everyone here this morning. We're so glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, there is a seat, uh, card in the seat back pocket in front of you. It is called a Connect card. Fill that out. Take it to the Welcome Center. We have a little bit of information we'd like to give you about our church, who we are, what we believe and whatnot. And also those uh, Connect cards can be used for prayer requests, so you can put them in the, um, the offering box there. We want to welcome our online audience. Can everybody give them a round of applause? We're so glad you're with us today as well. And not only that, but also those who are joining us, you know, later in a podcast or whatnot. We're on iTunes, Google Play, all that stuff. So Matthew chapter 26, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have a Bible, get there, Matthew 26. Now, how many of you guys have ever been accused falsely of something? Uh, somebody's made an accusation at you, said you did something. Maybe you even got persecuted for that thing, and, and, and you, you didn't do it. Anybody in, been there before? You've been falsely accused of something? That sucks, right? That, that's not fun to go through. But, um, you know, particularly if it's somebody that you care about that actually has done that to you. You know, a, a friend or maybe a relative, somebody that you love. See, here's the problem with that when somebody accuses you of something like that. What happens is uh, what they're really revealing to you is the reality that they have all along, your entire relationship thought that you were a little bit shady. You know what I mean? So they, they're, they're saying, hey, I think you're shady. I think you this. How else could you come to that conclusion, right? So they're thinking a little bit about you. They, 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 don't, they think you're a little shady and everything. Um, when I was 15 years old, I had a friend that I, I was over at his house one evening. It was like 10 o'clock at night. Uh, my, my parents asked me to come home. I, I, I went home that evening. I went to bed. I got up the next day. I thought, hey, this would be a great day to go to the mall, you know. I'm not a girl, I'm a guy, but I like the mall. So we, I, I said, you know, I'm going to call this friend that I was over at his house last night, one of my good friends. I'm going to ask him if he wants to go with me. And uh, so I call him up. Hey, you want to go to the mall? Yeah, sure. My wife, my mom picks, us, uh, take, picks him up. We go to the mall. We're walking around, and it, he seems very strange to me. I just saw this guy less than 24 hours ago. I'm hanging out with him. Everything was fine, but he's being weird. I'm just like, dude, what's this guy's problem? You know, we're walking around the mall, and he, he asked me a, like a real, um, he asked me like a, this, this question that I felt, you know, I'm like, why are you asking me this? But it was very aggressive, like, like there, was some, there was some attitude with it. He said, hey, how much money do you have? And I'm like, well, like it's any of your business, I have like five bucks in my pocket, you know? I, I don't have any money. I have like five bucks. And all of a sudden, the whole, his whole attitude changed. His whole dynamics changed. His body language changed, everything. And, 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 and he goes, man, well, that's good to hear. I go, that's not good to hear for me. I only have five bucks, you know. But he, he said, well, here, let me tell you what happened last night. My mom left her purse in our van, and uh, somebody came at night last night and stole all the money out of my mom's purse. It was all the money that they had to pay their bills with and everything. And my dad thinks it's you. And I'm like, so your dad thought I was shady the whole time. He thought I was a shady guy. And, and, it, and, and, and I was like, well, why would he think it's me? Well, he just thinks it's you. I don't know. I mean, and I'm like, dude, I didn't, you know, and, and immediately I tried to defend myself. It was a false accusation. I didn't do it. 
This is where Jesus finds himself in our story today, in the account where he is being falsely accused of anything. But we're going to watch how he handles this. It's very interesting how Jesus deals with false witnesses, with people that are slandering him, that are speaking against him. And, and what we're going to find here is sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing at all, to just remain silent. And what you need to understand is that, and Jesus understood this going into this trial, is that he was condemned before he stepped into the courtroom. This was predetermined for him. You know, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the council, the, the Supreme Court of the Jews had already met, the high priest had already made this declaration that it would be better for Jesus to die than it would be for the whole nation to perish. What, what, what Caiaphas was saying was, you know, this man is starting a revolution in our in our country, and what's going to happen, the Romans are going to come down on us, and they're going to persecute us for it. And so rather than us, you know, this become a national, you know, devastation, we're just going to take him out. Predetermined condemnation. He was condemned before he stepped into the courtroom, folks. He had, uh, they had predetermined uh, to kill Jesus. Now, what we know is that although man's plans were to condemn and to kill Jesus, God's plans were to save the world through this. Thus, Jesus was condemned to save. Condemned to save. That is the title of my message this morning. What we need to understand moving through the next several chapters, the trials of Jesus, there are six in total. We went through one two weeks ago where Jesus stood before Annas the high priest of Israel who was now been relieved of his duty by um, the, the Romans and Caiaphas had become the high priest that year. He, it's his son-in-law. It's still in the family and all. But uh, he, Jesus had already been seen before him and now he has been delivered to Caiaphas and there, there will be a trial that will go through this, uh, this morning before him. And then also when it becomes morning time, there's one more trial before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas where they determine to deliver Jesus to Pilate. There's three of the trials. The other three are before from Pilate to Herod back to Pilate. Six in total, all illegal, completely and totally unjust. Jesus is an innocent man that will be killed. He will be crucified because God predetermined that he would. What we're talking about is the sovereignty of God in the midst of this tragedy. Now, you think we hear the word sovereignty of God and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But let me just define what the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God is that He is in control, period. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how we see it. It doesn't matter if we understand it. The reality is God is sovereign, period. It doesn't matter how we want to relate to that, if we want to reject that, whatever. He is sovereign in everything. Everything. And that's hard for us to grasp when it comes to our free will and all these different things. It's very complicated, but we trust what the Bible says. We read the Bible, we trust what it says. God is sovereign. Jesus standing before these men, he is, he is standing before them, and yes, although they are acting on their evil within the Father had predetermined 
that Jesus would be slain from before the foundation of the world. So God is in control. And what we find here is a complete peace of Jesus Christ as he stands here understanding that this is all predetermined and I am going to save the world through this act. It's unjust. There's injustice here. And when there's injustice in the world, we want to rise up and we want to fight back. And yet what I think we find in the Word here is that rather than lash out or act out, what we really should do is rest in the sovereignty of God, that He knows what He's doing. We should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when we enter trials and that we should react the way that He would call us to, not the way that our flesh wants to. Because if I'm Jesus here, I'm calling down angels from heaven, I will slay these guys with one angel, with just one swipe, He will take them all out, and I will be saved. But that's not the plan. And if that were to have happened, we wouldn't be here today. We would have no reason to rejoice. We would be dead in our sin. But God predetermined from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be slain, that you and I can come into this place 2,000 years later and we can rejoice and we can be glad that our sins are forgiven because of what he's done. How amazing, how amazing that is. Jesus is at complete rest in the midst of these tragedies. Now, Peter declared this, that it was God's plan before the Jews when he stood up. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he said, This Jesus delivered up according to the uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He, uh, Peter was saying God's in control. God was in control from day one. Did Peter understand that? Well, two weeks ago, we watched him deny Christ in the midst of his trial. You know, that God was, Jesus had already told him that was going to happen. That's the sovereignty of God at work when he predetermined it was already going to happen and told him it was going to happen. He didn't believe it. And yet he did. Peter didn't believe it. Now he believes it. And he stands before all of Israel and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God had planned that. He had planned that way before you came along. But it was by your hand that it happened. And thus God use the evilness of man to accomplish his plan. It's an, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. Isaiah declared the purpose of the condemnation in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are healed by his wounds. According to these scriptures, Jesus was condemned to save. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Stand with me if we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we are going to pick it up in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following at a distance as far as the, the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat in the guards to, to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At the last two uh, came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. 
And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you were the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, uh, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Down to chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to not only rejoice in the reality of what this means for us, Lord, but that we would feel the weight of it, that we would understand the agony that Jesus went through for each one of us personally, Lord, and may that produce a Christ-likeness in our hearts, Lord, today. We ask that you would come and fashion and form us, Lord. You would remove any, any kind of uh, going through the motions or cultural Christianity, Lord. You would draw us to yourself this morning and you would set us ablaze for your glory, Lord. We ask you to help us to recognize we can trust you in every circumstance. And so have your way, God, we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were with us two weeks ago, you know that Jesus had already been questioned by Annas. And, of course, they brought Jesus to Annas because they were trying to get, they were trying to get some sort of you know, reason to try him. They had no reason at this point. There was no... There, there was no accusations to really throw. They were, he was questioning Jesus to try and condemn him. They wanted to get something from his own words. And Annas was frustrated very quickly and realized that there was no way that he was going to draw anything out of Jesus that was going to be meaningful. So what he does is he transfers him over to Caiaphas, who is the high priest here. And, and this is where we pick it up this morning. Now, these are completely and totally illegal trials according to the Jewish law. According to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people in righteousness and judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They were supposed to be people of justice. They were supposed to be standing for truth. And yet, because Jesus is an obstacle in the midst of their plans, they will violate their own law to condemn him. In their effort to be righteous, they are being very unrighteous. In their effort to, to, to stand for what they think is best for the nation, they condemn a sinless man 
an innocent man, and his blood is upon their hands. Jesus is getting nothing but injustice here. Perhaps you've been there. Hey, what I want you to understand is that God is in control. It doesn't matter if, you know, what accusations come at you. You can rest in the Lord. Because the Bible says that the Lord is our defender. That He is our strong tower. That He is our refuge. That we can run to Him and be safe. And so when we fight, you cannot fight the world, folks. What you can do in the midst of injustice is stand behind the Lord and allow Him to fight the battle. If you step in and you get in between God and the the people, you will be devoured. You will be discouraged. You will be, you know, completely and totally devastated because God is the one that fights our battles, not us. And it's difficult for us to do, isn't it? When someone's coming at us, we want to lash back. But the Holy Spirit would say, stand fast and trust the Lord. Stand fast and trust the Lord and see what he is going to do. He's 100% in control. Listen, God sees the injustice that's happening in your life. And he is, as the Bible says, working it out for your good. Well, I don't understand that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if we understand it. We trust the word. And I know that's difficult. And I'm there. I've been there many, many times. And I'm saying, hey, Tim, take your own advice and trust the Lord in the midst of your trials. Jesus is 100% trusting the Father in the midst of this injustice because he understands that this is the will of the Father. If you're in the midst of a trial today, I just want to encourage you to let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus also, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus knows what's about to happen and he understands that's the plan. That's why he came. The question is, why are you here? What is God doing in your life? Why is he allowing the things in your life that he is? What trial do you face today? Perhaps it's the will of God. I don't see. I don't, God's, God, God wants me to be a millionaire. He wants me to uh, be blessed. He wants me to have everything you know, this world has. No, he doesn't. He wants you to be like Jesus. That's his heart for you. And for some of us, that means that we, he puts us in different positions for different reasons that we might become more like Jesus because it's in the fire that uh, the dross is burned off, folks. It's in difficulty that we find ourselves, our flesh, we find out what we're really made of. We find out where our faith really stands. And so we can trust the Lord and know that he is at work in the midst of this. Here we find Jesus standing in an illegal trial before an unjust mob of people that want to crucify him, and he uh, responds to them by remaining silent. Look at this in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. We have the sinless 
son of God, standing before Caiaphas the high priest and the entire council, which is the Sanhedrin. This is, again, the Supreme Court. These are 70 men that have been appointed to stand for justice, as we read in Deuteronomy 16. They're supposed to stand for justice. They're supposed to try. They are not uh, supposed to discover, um, you know, what, what the accusations would be in the midst of the trial. They're simply there to judge them. They are completely out of order here. This Sanhedrin council goes all the way back to Moses, where, Moses, where the Lord told Moses to appoint 70 men. And these would be the elders of Israel that would judge the people. That's where it came from. Remember in the disbarment and in the exile to Babylon, all of that was done away with. And Ezra comes back into the land and Ezra restores that council, the Sanhedrin. They're called the Great Sanhedrin in the New Testament. It is these men who are... The Sanhedrin is made up of both Sadducean priests and Pharisaical scribes. And these guys can't agree on anything. They don't agree on eternal life. They don't agree on, you know, the the present life. They don't agree on anything. And yet they agree on one thing, which is Jesus needs to die. Jesus needs to die. It's funny how a diverse group of people can come together in unity when it's against Jesus. When it's against Jesus. How all these different people in the world will stand united to take out the Bible in school, to you know, take down the, the monuments in our, in our country that, that, that say anything about God. And yet these people can't agree on anything else except for, I don't like that Jesus. Here these guys are standing in unity. They, they know that Jesus needs to die. And they are, uh, they are prepared to do whatever is necessary to do that. What I find interesting is that in their hypocrisy of trying Jesus, these jokers, we'll see next week, will come before Pilate and they won't even enter his house because they don't want to defile themselves because it's the Passover the next day. They're afraid to defile themselves that way and yet they'll crucify and kill an innocent man. We justify ourselves in our sin, don't we? These guys, they, they are so blinded to their own sin they can see the sin on, on they, they, Jesus is innocent, and they, they, they see sin on him, yet they see no sin in their life. And they're worried about defiling themselves by entering a man's home, and yet the blood of the sinless Son of God will be on their hands. It's crazy. The heart is deceitful and above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Beware of your flesh, Christian. Because it will do the same thing. You might have Jesus in here, but you have an enemy within as well that's fighting for control. And you will do whatever, you will go to great lengths to justify yourself and your sin as these guys will do if you're not careful. This council was empowered to act as judge and jury in a legal proceeding, they were not to instigate charges, but only to determine cases that were brought before them. So they're totally acting I- illegally. And not only that, they start to conjure up even false witnesses to accomplish their, their plan there. And, and we find here that they can't even get the story straight. 
They can't find liars that can even agree on their lies. They can't, they can't stand before this council in the middle of the night, which is illegal, and uh, you know, condemn Jesus for anything because these, these guys can't even agree. The Bible to- tells us that unless uh, two or three witnesses are agreed upon something, there can be no judgment. But if two or three are, then you can proceed to death even. So, so they need two or three witnesses to be legal. <laughs> They're false witnesses, but we're going to be legal about this. Make sure we have two or three, wi- three false witnesses, you know, and uh, make sure that we can condemn him. Mark chapter 14, verse 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You know your heart up when the liars can't tell the same story, man. Jesus is innocent, and that's the point. There is no way for... God is frustrating the plans of man in the midst of this to make the point that Jesus is 100% innocent. So in other words, when he, when he moves forward here and Caiaphas asks him to give an account, it's because he doesn't say anything because there's nothing to say. What, what do I need to say? These guys have... These guys have done enough. They can't, there, there is no reason for me to be here. I'm innocent. You know that. I know that. Everybody in this room knows that. Even the two that would come in, in Mark's gospel, it says, that would say, you know, hey, he, he, said it, he, he spoke against the temple. He said he was going to destroy the temple in three days, and then he was going to build it back up. Oh, you know, the temple was a big deal for these people. He spoke against the temple. You spoke against God. That's blasphemy. That is, the judgment is death. And yet, in Mark's gospel, it says that um, that they did not agree on their testimony. None of this even coincides with one another, and yet, that's just going to have to be good enough. We're good with that, but let's move forward. He said that he was going to do that. Now, here's the thing. Jesus didn't even say that. He was not talking about the physical temple. Here's what he said in John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about himself. Uh, These false witnesses come at him and say, no, he's talking about the temple. He was not talking about the temple. He's talking about his temple, his body, and about his resurrection. What you need to understand is Jesus is saying, I am in control of my death and resurrection. I will lay it down and I will take it back up. He's in control. He's he's not, he, he said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The father uh, Jesus has revealed the plan to Jesus. Jesus understands the power that he has. He says, I will therefore lay my life down. I will take it back up because the Father has given me the authority to do so. And yet in the midst of this false witnessing, Caiaphas turns to Jesus and he says, have you no answer against this, against these, you know, such believable testimony? You have nothing to say against this, huh, Jesus. And yet it says he remained silent. This is in line with Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that was before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Jesus had nothing to say because he was innocent, and he just let his innocence rest. You ever been in that moment where you just have got, you, basically there's nothing else to say in the conversation because it's pointless? It's pointless to try and prove your point. It's pointless to continue on with this conversation because it's going nowhere. So Jesus remains silent, and it's in that silence that the truth is being revealed. You know that. It's in the silence when the Holy Spirit begins to work on the heart and say, you're so wrong here, and you resist Him. And you say, no, I, I, I'm not wrong here, and yet you have nothing to say. Jesus is allowing the Father just to convict these guys' hearts. We, we don't know what's going on with them, but He says nothing because there's nothing to be said. Everything that has been brought against him is false. And he doesn't need to make a witness, a defense for himself. There's a point in that. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't defend himself, and yet anytime the world stands against Jesus in any way, uh, the, 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 you know, we as his body want to rush out and defend him. Does he need us to defend him? He's the defender. He doesn't need us to defend him. See, what happens when we try and defend Jesus is we defame him. That's really what happens. Oh, Jesus needs my help. I rush in. I get my flesh reared up, and I defame my Lord. Here's what I'm saying is be careful of trying to defend the Lord. He doesn't need your help. Now, with that said, there are times, there are people that God has sent into the world to stand for him, right? There are apologists and different things like that that God has a call on their life to do that and all. And, you know, I prefer to just let them do that because they're called to it. Because if I try and do it, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to defame the Lord in some way. So what I would say is let the Lord, let those who are called to do those things do those things. You stand firm in your faith. You believe in the Lord. You trust Him and what He's doing. And you let Him defend Himself. You let His Word speak for itself. You're not the convincer. The Holy Spirit is. You, you don't have to try and argue somebody into heaven. It'll never happen. You just let God's Word speak and when the conversation's over, remain silent. Amen? Because any other words beyond that are going to be sin. So beware. Jesus remained silent for a reason. Spurgeon said he was, um, he was the silence of patience, not indifference, of courage, not cowardice. He was standing there understanding that the Father was in control. And I am doing the will of the Father. This has to happen. I speak. I'm not going to speak. As the great uh, theologian Allison Krauss said, you say it best when you say nothing at all, you know. So here we have Jesus saying nothing. Now, this, this irritates Caiaphas, I, I believe. I mean, it just, again, my mind, the way it works, the movie scenes, and I can see him get frustrated in the silence as Jesus doesn't try and defend himself. And the high priest, uh, verse 63, he, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the, the Christ, the Son of God. What he is asking Jesus to do, he is, he is now moved to like, remember the movie uh, um, A Few Good Men? Remember the point in the movie where Tom Cruise is going to put his entire career on the line where he is going to, he's going to say, you know, did you order the code red? You know, to this colonel that can basically ruin his career and all this stuff. He, he just laid it out there and, and, and everybody in the courtroom was like, Whoa, did he just do that? You know, he's appealing to the highest court here. He's, he, he asked him point blank, did you do this? 
you know, and it was in, in, in passion and rage that he does this. This is how Caiaphas asked Jesus, I adjure you. He is appealing to the law, to the highest court, to the Father. And he's saying, you now must defend yourself. You have to speak. This was the law. And now he's appealing to the law. This, the, listen, Satan is crafty. He's very smart. He understands to use God's word against you. He is, he is incredibly deceitful. And so he, behind the scenes of Caiaphas in his own heart, stirs his heart and he says, take him to the law because he won't violate the law. And so Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1 says, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify and though he is a witness whether he is seen or come to know the matter yet does not speak he shall bear his iniquity if he does not speak he's guilty of whatever it is that they're accusing him of so this is the deceitfulness this is the slyness of the devil here <laughs> and so he calls jesus out are you the christ this is the question are you the christ and are you the son of god he's asking him two things are you Messiah and are you God? Because those are your claims. Are you Messiah? Are you God? Now, you and I both know that Jesus had made no bones about who he, uh, who he was from day one. He spoke. He told the people. When he went to his own hometown, when his ministry began, he went into the synagogue and he spoke these words in Isaiah, or Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to the blind, to set a liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and all the eyes of all our, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." What what did he just say? What he just said was, "I am Messiah." That was a messianic, prophetic word that Jesus took the scroll and he said, "I fulfilled this this day." He just told them he's Messiah, and of course you know the rest of the story. His hometown's like. No, you're Joseph's son. You're not the Messiah. Get out of here. And they end up rejecting Jesus and kicking him out of town. <laughs> he just told you he was the Messiah. Don't you think you should investigate that a little bit? At the woman at the well, she said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Is he hiding the fact that he's the Messiah here? No, he said, I am the Messiah. He, he, he said that plainly multiple times. The, just uh, earlier this week, the Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, the, you know, a, a hillside of people that are laying palm branches down and they're all proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He who saves, that's what that means. He who saves, he is the Messiah. That's what they were saying. Jesus didn't rebuke anybody that day. He received the praise and he, he waltzed into Jerusalem on a donkey just like the Messiah was prophesied to do. He's not hiding who he is, folks. Not only that, but he also claimed himself to be God. John chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. And 
This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was do, what he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? That's the question. Jesus could have simply said, what else? I, I, haven't I already told you this? I've been plain about it. But he does answer the question. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it's, he says, I am. That means that's the, 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 the name of God. He says, I am God. I am. He, he says in Matthew, Matthew records it here as, as Jesus saying that um, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is not denying who he is, folks. He's standing firm in who he is, and this is only a problem if, it's, if it is not true. You see, blasphemy can only be blasphemy if it's false. But it's not false. It is true. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God and God the Son. Pure and simple, and Jesus doesn't make any bones about it, and he tells them, one day you will see me in my glory. One day you will see me coming on the clouds. You will see me reigning because I am everything that I said I am. Verse 65, then the priest tore his robes <laughs> and said, he has utterly ba- uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So here we have the end of trial two. Jesus is being beaten up. He is being, you know, brutalized because of who he is. Because of who he is. It's not because of their false testimony. It's because he said, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Son of God. These are both facts. They are both true. And yet they will be the things that they will condemn him for. The whole council, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, they all go nuts at this point and they cry out blasphemy, blasphemy. Caiaphas then, as the high priest, as the sort of the judge in the court, he, he looks to the council and he says, what is your judgment? And they say, he shall die. He shall die because he is blasphemous. It is a mockery. This courtroom, all of these men in their hypocrisy, mocking the one thing that is true in the room and it's Jesus. It's amazing, but let me let you in on a secret. That will never change. People will always respond to Jesus in that way, whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of God, or not. It is their own hearts that will keep them away from him and keep him dark. And you and I, we really can't do anything about that except for be the body of Christ. Right to Jesus remained who he was in the moment. He stood fast in who he was. He stood for his faith and he died for his faith. And that is what we are called to do in a world that rejects him. 
right? We're not the convincers. The Holy Spirit is the convincer. But we do have to stand our ground. We do have to not allow the culture to sway us to become less because they don't like the Jesus in whom we represent. I, I see this moment as, as Jesus is standing there as really a challenge to me to say, Lord, as I am put in these circumstances where injustice is happening, as people are coming against me, how should I respond to that? And the Lord would say, stand fast and trust me. Stand fast and trust me. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I have a plan for your life. We say it all the time. And yet when a negative circumstance comes in our life, we go, oh, that can't be God's plan. No way that God planned. Hey, listen, he's shaping you. You can't chip, st chip stone off of, off of a statue, you know, without it costing it something. It's going to hurt. When God starts to chisel you down into the cry that Christ-like form, it, it's going to come through trials. It's going to come through hardships and things. And sometimes it's, it hurts pretty bad but I'm thankful for the lessons. I don't know about you. I want to stand fast in the midst of, listen, this is the greatest, this is the, 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 when the spotlight is on you in these moments like it was Jesus here, this is where you're the greatest witness. This is where you're the greatest witness. That's why the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs has 10, 10 different persecutions and th thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ as a result of a few standing their ground and being willing to give up their own lives for Christ. Jesus stood his ground here. He didn't change who he was because of who he was before. And he allowed the sovereignty of God to work out. And he just said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And that's what we ought to do. He claimed to be Messiah and God. And he was not backing down on that. It goes on in Matthew chapter one, uh, 27, verses 1 and 2, and it says that they, they gathered him up after they beat him and everything, which we'll talk about in a second, and they they're going to deliver him to Pilate, which is where we'll pick it up next week. Jesus is done. The Jews have made their determination. And what they do now as a result of, you know, this, this blasphemy, this false blasphemy that they accuse him of is they begin to beat him. His trial is, not, not, is just beginning, folks. He is about to endure some of the hardest physical pain that a person can experience. These guys immediately start enraged. They begin to beat him. They begin to punch him, closed-fisted, slap him, open-fisted, ripping out his beard. They begin to brutalize his body because they do not like what he stands for. They hate him. And yet, Jesus allowed them to. He allowed them to because he understood that was the cost for our sin. It was the cost for my sin. It is why he allowed these things to happen. You sit there, we're going to watch The Passion of the Christ on Good Friday here in a few weeks. And you're going to see the brutalness. Probably, you know, again, there are, are no eyewitnesses accounts currently other than the ones that wrote the Bible. But, we, but the, 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 the depiction of the beatings of Jesus in this movie are what theologians call the most accurate that have ever been portrayed. He was a bloody mess, folks. He was beaten beyond recognition. 
And you know what? He did it willfully. That is love. That is love. When the Savior of the world, who is God in the flesh, comes down and allows sinful man to have his way because he understands it, it is the only way for mankind to be reconciled, that is love. And that's what he's done for you and for me. And as we, you know, prepare for communion here today, I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about the brutality of what happened here. As we were being depicted in our scripture this morning, tells us that, you know, they, they begin to spit in his face. These high priests, the, the Sanhedrin, as they would walk by him, they would spit on him and they would, they would slap him, they would beat him. Spit on his face, they struck him, they would mock him. Tell us who did that, Jesus, you prophet. Tell us who struck you. You can imagine the crowd circling around Jesus taking their shots at him. I don't say that to sadden you. I say that to help you understand the weight of sin, folks. The cost that Jesus paid for you is incredible, something we will never grasp. Even though we will see him as he was slain in heaven, we will, we, he will bear the wounds of, of the cross and we will look upon him as the slain lamb, we will never comprehend the, 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 the cost of the sin, of our sin and the cost for his blood to be shed on our behalf. And so as we are going to partake of communion as a, as a body this morning, because I feel it's appropriate in result of what we're doing here this morning, that we're going to disperse the communion elements. And, we're going, and I want to just encourage you this morning to consider the beatings that he took for you and for me, for our sin. That he went to the cross willfully and that he died for you. Not only that, but the good news is he rose again from the dead. So let the weight of that hit your heart this morning. Let the weight of the fact of what he had to endure affect you today. Let us not take communion this morning in a way that is just flippant as we just come through once a month and we partake of the juice in the cup and we just move forward and we're just, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. But let us think about what he's done. Let us think about what he has endured on our behalf and, and ask the Lord even this morning, even right now before we even do this, Lord, are there things in my life right now that I need to confess to you? Are there, is there sin in my life that I need to turn over to you? Are there things in that I'm doing right now, God, that I need to stop doing. Because Jesus Christ was brutalized for me, for my sin. Yes, I'm forgiven, but I'm forgiven to, to, to be changed, to, to live a life of sanctification, to continually become more like Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning as we're, uh, the worship team's going to come up, we're going to um, distribute the elements, and we are going to uh, partake together. Jesus was condemned to save. That was the whole point of his existence. And he willingly did that for us. So I just want to encourage you this morning, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you're not right with God this morning, that before we even move forward, you do that, that you come into right relationship with Christ, 
you ask him to forgive you of your sin, that you um, believe that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead for you, and, and by confessing him as Lord and Savior in belief, that he will bring newness of life to you. The Bible says you will be born again. If you're not in right relationship this morning, right now is the time to do it. You know, again, w- w- he, didn't, he wasn't playing church here, right? I mean, he, he knew what was going to happen, and he willfully did it. So, you know, this morning, he knew you were going to be here. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows right where you are. He wants to reconcile with you. Like, if God were here right now, he would come right here. He would get on his knees, and he would say, would you come? Would you come to me? I paid the price for you. I love you. He would do that for you because he, he loves you and he wants to forgive you, but you have to make that choice. So this morning, if that's you, you come, you ask him. There are no special prayers. It's a heart surrender to him. It says, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. I want to turn my life over to you completely and totally. Here's the keys, Jesus. Take them. Here you go. Here's my life. If you do that, man, your life will radically change, just like mine did 20-some years ago. Hey, if you're in relationship with the Lord this morning and you feel a little bit sluggish in your walk, you're feeling like you're going through the motions, confess that to him this morning. Ask him, Lord, will you renew my spirit this morning? Will you put a passion in me for you? Will you help me to see the lost the way that you see them? Will you help me to see my sin the way that you see my sin, Lord? This morning, will you just set me ablaze for you? Listen, I tell you, he wants nothing more for you. And that is the best life now. Not what Joel Steen's telling you, but that right there, asking Jesus Christ to set you ablaze, to get on mission for him. It's the greatest thing that you can do, folks. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to move. Father, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ came to this world, that he entered our world to become like us so that we could be reconciled to you, Father. What amazing grace you've given us in your Son. And we ask you this morning, God, that you would move in our midst, God, that you would help every person in this place, Lord, to not, uh, to not just move past this moment, but to really consider what you've done for us. We're about to partake of communion. Your word tells us, don't do this in an unworthy manner lest you reap judgment upon yourself. You are a holy God. You are a righteous God and you call us to righteousness, to holiness. And then you fill the gaps where we fail with the blood of your son. And so we ask this morning, God, that you would move in our midst, that you would, you would awaken the dead, that you would... Uh, rejuvenate, Lord, those who have fallen asleep this morning, God, that you would just do what only you can do by your spirit. Come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.